welcome to the next edition of Dream Reality with Aiden Consulting. So this is a podcast series where we talk to people who are innovators, who are change makers, who really challenge the norm and the status quo, who are happy with disruption and really want to take things to the next level and see opportunity in every situation. And this week, I am really excited to have our guest here with us, and it is Kelly. And Kelly is someone that I met during my MBA journey, and she has a really cool story and an even cooler job. And she was the head of business development at SKU, a fintech company, which has just been taken over by Coinbase. So Kelly, over to you, tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, firstly, Allison, let me thank you um, for having me on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to um, fabulous women um, in the entrepreneurial space. Um, but yeah, a little bit more about me. So I started my career off actually in financial marketing at an investment bank in New York City. Um, I got out of university during the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. And during that time, um, it was quite challenging to, to find a role. And I majored in business um, and focused on marketing. And I was able to um, take kind of the, the easiest role that, that came to me through my networking and through the, um, the, the process of interview elimination and, and kind of where I found the opportunity um, and the most success. And I moved into financial marketing at investment banks. And as my career continued to progress, I found myself um, in more and more senior roles at a variety of different um, offshore banks, so not American banks. I worked for Canadian banks and Australian um, investment bank. Um, and after some good strategic work I did at Macquarie Bank in New York, I was asked um, by the head of the EMEA team based in London to move over and lead um, a strategic uh, kind of brand and marketing piece of work um, for the bank in EMEA. And at that time, I was in New York City for about six years. Um, I'm from New York, lived in New York, and was really kind of open to change. I decided um, to basically not think too much about it and say yes. I knew nobody in London, um, have some family in Ireland and Norway, only went to London once for a couple of days, um, didn't really think. And the next thing I knew, um, under four weeks later, I had gotten a visa and moved over to the UK and was leading this brand project um, and kind of sales engagement effort at Macquarie for EMEA. Um, kind of fast forward to where I am today, five and a half years later, I'm still in the UK. I have moved um, and really, I moved into somewhat of a, um, uh, a similar, I guess, uh, industry. But what I really had done is a lot of personal kind of work on, on what my values are and what excites me. And I've really thought about kind of the combination of technology and how it can really change and impact what financial services brings to both kind of the individual consumer and also businesses. Um, and, you know, being at banks for a, the whole kind of foundation of my career, I saw a lot of challenges and, and had maybe some frustrations around kind of the ability to manage the needs of, of, of their customers. Um, and as a result of that, I kind of found this intersection of tech and, um, and finance. And most recently, I have moved into cryptocurrency 
Um, I worked on building one institutional lending startup for crypto assets, and most recently moved to lead up business development globally for a data analytics company in crypto. And um, last week officially joined the Coinbase team on their institutional sales um, coverage team, helping corporations, institutions, investors, uh, fintech companies get exposure into crypto or understand why um, crypto is important and giving them some of the um, products and services to help them understand the market and potentially get into the market for themselves, for their own businesses, or even to offer it to their uh, customers. Mm -hmm. Well, quite, quite the journey. You know, it's, uh, although there's a bit of a common theme throughout, but I mean, really, uh, you know, you've really challenged yourself throughout the journey, taking some risks, and then now are really, you know, leading the way in a sphere, which I think is really going to take off and is really something that not that many people understand. Let's be quite, you know, honest about it. It's a bit of a black box for a lot of people, but and I think it's really interesting that you you mentioned about uh, values there and things. And did that really drive you? Did that really something that really helped you to focus and understand for yourself what was important? And then you let that help drive your your future. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good question, and I think some people might think it's a bit of a silly thing to do, a silly exercise, or maybe not come to terms with kind of understanding um, what drives them or kind of, you know, how they want to spend their time. Um, and that's fine. But for me, I kind of went through a few personal challenges in my life here in the UK. Um, and off the back of those, I really spent a lot of time um, trying to understand what, what like makes up who I am and looking at some of my values, which are things like um, teamwork. Uh, I was a footballer and I grew up playing in, in, on teams. So teamwork was really important to me. Um, the other thing that was really important to me was adventure. Like I love to go and challenge myself and hike, hike a mountain, um, or move to another country. And, um, I knew that was something that, you know, was mm -hmm. fundamental kind of to who I am, um, risk-taking, but also resiliency, um, was something else that was really important to me. Um, and being grateful was another thing, um, collaboration. And there were certain things that kind of when brought together, I was able to kind of really see the light, I guess, for myself and try yeah. to align myself with maybe not working at a 35,000 person company in financial services, maybe working at a 20 person company while a huge shift allowed me to work in a team that was building something that I believed in, but was, was building it in a way um, you know, in a very collaborative way of working together and working through challenges and all being relatively aligned, not trying to find, you know, employee number 562 who might be able to help me, you know, yeah. figure out a workflow process to bring a product to market that doesn't even maybe, you know, understand that the product that we have been working on. So for me, there were some of these things that were really drawn out during that process and during that work I did personally. And as a result, I became very comfortable with risk-taking when I understood why. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I can completely resonate with that because it was kind of after looking at my values, which drove me to change my career. So I think that that's, it's, it's quite a similar thread when you hear people that, you know, have pivots or have you know very clear directions a lot of them do value work and understand their values 
And it's, it's, it's interesting to see that come up time and time again. So going on to, to FinTech, I mean, and you know, a little bit on the, the whole cryptocurrency thing, you know, now it's, it's so much more in the media than even 12 months ago. And I think we can all thank Elon Musk for that. <laughs> Rightly or wrongly, and I have an opinion, but I mean, that's, that's you know, I think we all have opinions on that. But do you think that, um, that this is something that is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, is that going to be helpful in the long term to help the, is this something that's really a product for the general public in the future? And this is, although it might not be necessarily helpful in short term, you know, this publicity, whether positive or negative, is long term going to be good to normalize the cryptocurrency of the future? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, where we are today, um, cryptocurrency has become much more mainstream than yeah. it was even a year ago. Um, I think when we think about what a digital currency is, um, it might be hard for one to kind of tangibly envision that. But when we think about the way we live our lives today, we, most of us are not using paper, yep. USD or GBP or the Euro when we transact. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the way that we're moving, we're moving at a very quick pace to a much more virtual and digitalized environment, whether we like it or we don't. Um, and one of the ways that, you know, supports that, 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 that theory is kind of this, this concept of crypto. Some people might say that, you know, what is crypto and how can we kind of trust this? And some people, you know, there's a lot of questions around that. But when we think actually, and we dive in deep to the way, for example, the US dollar um, is backed up by the US government. Yeah. In the past, it used to be backed up by gold. But yeah. when you actually dive in now and you research that, it's not backed up by gold anymore. There's not enough gold to back each and every US dollar. Yeah. Um, so what is it backed by? You know, it's backed by the U.S. economy. It's backed by trust. It's backed by, you know, kind of the mm -hmm. Fed and the government. Um, but you know, there's this there's questions around that too, and there's kind of you know um, some underlying maybe opinions um, around kind of what that might mean and why the Fed can print, you know, a lot of of money and into the market when kind of the, the you know policies need to kind of be supported um in recessions and, and there's a lot of questions i guess to be asked so basically crypto is you know this digital currency that i deeply deeply think is here to stay and i think if we look back to kind of the times of the internet boom there was also a fundamental question around what is the internet and a lot of people kind of were haters and didn't really believe in, in, in what was going to happen. People still today don't understand how the internet works, right? So I think in terms of crypto, there's a lot of people that don't understand how a blockchain works, what yeah. a protocol is, kind of the way in which, um, you know, the, 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 the cryptocurrencies on specific protocols are exchanged or what that might mean. Um, there's people that don't understand the security behind it, but at the end of the day, 
it, the internet works and we all use it and we don't really know how it works, a lot of us. And I think it's the same kind of concept for crypto. Um, and when kind of a lot of these companies, a company like Coinbase, for example, or um, you know, there's many other companies out there, when they're able to kind of bring it mainstream and you're not kind of seeing the underlying infrastructure behind it, it makes things much easier in terms of mm -hmm. payment cross-border. It makes yeah. things easier for countries that maybe don't believe um, in their own um, uh, country currency, for example, mm -hmm. that maybe want to invest in a different asset. Um, it might be a, you know, a hedge to inflation, for example. Um, it might be an asset that you want to diversify just out of equities and, and stocks and um, bonds and kind of other areas. And you want to invest in an asset class that has grown um, exponentially over time. So I think there's a lot kind of to be said for where things are going. I think there's still a lot of um, regulation and infrastructure that needs to catch up to be able to make it much more mainstream and probably a bit more education. But I think where we're much more closer to that today than we were even at the end of last year. Yeah, I, th I think totally. And, and just on that point, now that China has released its digital or is releasing its digital currency, do you think now um, other countries are going to, because it's not exactly the same as the cryptocurrency, it's slightly different. So is that, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert, I've listened to a couple of podcasts and that's it, but is, it, is that something that other countries are going to follow? And is that going to really disrupt the way we think of cash and currency and transactions for the future? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think a lot is kind of to be determined, but there has been... Um, you know, a number of kind of pieces out in the media and a number of discussions being had, for example, by, to, to my knowledge, and things are changing very, very quickly on a daily basis. Yeah. So sometimes it's it's hard to keep up actually in the space, but um, like the Bank of England, for example, has been looking at um, ways in which they might be able to um, bring to market a, a CBDC, yeah. which is um, a central bank digital currency. So we're starting to see more use cases, mm -hmm. um, more of the central banks looking at that. In the role that I do, um, I speak to um, a variety of kind of um, um, various um, like settlement providers that are sitting okay. across different jurisdictions that are advising government entities on kind of mm -hmm. what digital currency may look like for, for a country or a specific jurisdiction. So, you know, I know those things are kind of in the works, but we all know, um, you know, governmental bodies and, and kind of regulators are always risk adverse. So their yeah. ability to kind of make decisions is very much led by, you know, the market maturity um, mm -hmm. And kind of, they like to take that back seat to, to kind of make the most thoughtful, um, mature decision that they can. So they're always playing catch up and that's just the way it goes. So yeah. we'll have to see, but yes, China is on the front foot there. Mm. And as part of a FinTech startup, I was reading an article in the Financial Times and it kind of alluded that FinTech startups are really there to be the innovators for banks and to be bought by banks so that banks don't die, <laughs> essentially. What, what, what's your opinion on that? Are you, are you just there to, to innovate and, Listen, and create I think products so that the banks can just buy you and use those products? I think, 
you know, I, I think you can take a lot of various kind of angles to that. Um, I think startups are fundamental to democratic economies, right? They're, they're innovative, they drive change, um, they generate new ideas, they bring kind of, you know, that they're changing the world basically yeah. for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, and every single startup has a potential, you know, proposed exit strategy. The founders look at, you know, what do we want to do or what do we, what are, what do we hope to do in, you know, three to five years or yeah. 10 years and beyond. Some want to go public and an IPO, um, some look to kind of get venture capital backing um, and then potentially move on to get sold, yeah, to a company that has some sort of like symbiotic view and, um, you know, they have mutual benefits and mutual synergies there. Um, you know, some companies are very happy to stay niche and just be very targeted and support yeah. a small client set. And they're very happy with just that. So I think it's, it, it very much depends, I guess, on kind of the vision of the company and the founding team. Um, however, I think banks have a real challenge now to catch up. And I yeah. think whether they like it or not, they have to take measures in order to adapt to the changing times. And what we're seeing is a lot of banks, yes, coming in and looking at buying startups, buying fintech companies, buying payment providers, setting up innovation centers internally, where they can actually bring startups to market by providing them some funding and maybe taking a small minor stake as an investor. But then depending on how some of these startups in their, um, you know, kind of entrepreneurial, innovation hub um, mm -hmm. perform, they may want might they might want to actually fully acquire them or take a larger stake in them or actually completely um, you know merge them into their their current operating model. Um, I think you know what's driving all of that at the end of the day and I talk to a lot of large institutions right now about crypto and kind of their position on crypto and, and a lot of them are just coming in to try to understand and make yeah. sense of the market it's driven by customers. So if customers can find a cheaper way to transfer money from, I don't know, the US to the UK, or they can find a cheaper, um, more efficient way to, you know, I don't know, um, get a specific, you know, um, pr financial product or whatever it might be, or if they have a need, if a, if a high net worth client is coming to a bank and saying, I have $10 million and I want to invest in crypto and they don't have the offering. These are just a couple of examples. They're losing revenue. They're losing yeah. commissions. They're losing the client, not just on that one product, but then potentially on the whole suite of products that they offer that client because the client yeah. wants an integrated seamless experience. So they're being driven by the market and by client need to change. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one example in crypto why a, lot, why a lot of these companies are trying to understand the ecosystem and the market opportunity, not because they maybe want to, but because they have to. Otherwise, they will lose clients. They will lose clients to fintechs. And yeah. that's that. And, you know, I think the other, the other thing to mention on that point is fintechs or startup, startups in general are lean, lean, yeah. mean, and agile they can get things done much quicker than banks can. So yeah. it's also can be a relatively uh, strategic advantage for large institutions to come in and buy startups mm -hmm. um, because these startups are able to get things to market much quicker than they ever would have. And it would cost the banks 
10 times more the amount of time, resources, you know, and, and efforts basically to get that product to market when a startup already did that. And all they have to do is buy it for a relatively potentially cheap cost based on their current balance sheet. Yeah. Wow. A lot to think about there, but I think that that definitely makes sense that, you know, they need, to, they really need to, to be up to speed. And if this is the most cost-effective way and the most efficient way, because the banks are very bureaucratic, they're never going to be able to get there by themselves. You know, we all know exactly. the paperwork <laughs> with banking. Exactly. It's, you know, it's a joy to everyone, a joy. Exactly, exactly. You lose your card. Everybody's happy about that scenario because it's so easy to get a new one. Exactly. <laughs> but then just so just going on to the uh, maybe the startup environment, because I know that you're you're somewhat involved with with startups and the whole ecosystem and environment around them. So do you think that, you know, other people um are, are, are identifying this period of the last 18 months as an opportunity. So do you see more ideas, more innovations, more um, companies looking for financing or being founded than, than maybe, you know, two years ago? And it's just people seeing this as an opportunity. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think, the last 18 months has been really hard um, for a lot of startups. I think mm -hmm. what has happened, and you might know this yourself, um, uh, you know, a lot of startups plan, you know, one, three, five years out, mostly in business school, they'll tell you to kind of make a five-year plan, but basically, fun realistically speaking, you're planning one year yeah. out. Maybe you're lucky if you have somewhat of a scenario for three years, but it will change a thousand times yeah. over. I think what really happened during the pandemic is that um, like companies, um, business plans basically had to completely get reworked and revamped and like totally. re rethought mm -hmm. of, right? And reinvented. Um, I think people had to kind of start almost from scratch to look at various um, like worst case scenarios, yeah. like do, do proper scenario planning. Um, I think they needed to look at kind of their um, expenses versus costs and really think about how they might be able to cut back um, in order to sustain basically their payroll or even if it was just a couple of founders like if they were paying themselves yeah. um, and just ensure that they can kind of keep the lights on so it was basically just survival mode um, yeah. rather than kind of you know growth mode or kind of investing in the business potentially so I think that caused mm -hmm. a lot of pain um, and struggle for some startups um, and I think what happened also on the investment side for investors, um, access to capital, while it may have, uh, when we went digital, it may have opened you up to many more conversations with global investors or yeah. kind of folks that maybe you wouldn't um, initially have contact with in your city or kind of locally. Um, I think investors, when there's a market kind of downturn and there's like an economic impact, no matter what investors tend to be cautious. So, and when you think about it, investing in a startup is one of the most risky investments out there. Um, you know, you're not putting your money in a, in a bond or even kind of an, you know, security for that matter. You're putting your, you're, you're putting your capital into, you know, a, a very kind of high risk, um, high return situation, which is always, you know, a great thing, but kind of when the market 
sees a downturn, I think people kind of want to take a wait and see approach. So I think in terms of new companies coming to market, you know, there's always new companies coming to market, but I haven't seen as many companies kind of coming to market in the last six to 12 to 18 months. But I've seen a lot of the startups just trying to put on their kind of like survival mode um, and, and, and trying to kind of get through. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I have to ask the question because you're, you're a female working in fintech, which is, you know, one, a tech space, which is generally male dominated and two, a financial area, which is also mainly male dominated. So do you think that, do you see any any change in that mix? Um, has the last 18 months shaken things up or do you think it's the same and there's just little drip feeding more and more diversity coming in? Yeah, so the, from my experience, the, the the, the last three companies I've worked for in fintech and crypto, the the first one I was at, I was one of um, three women. There was 25 of us. The second one I was at, SKU, which is the data analytics company, mm-hmm. I was one of 20 um, and 19 were men. So I was the only woman. And most recently I joined Coinbase, um, mm-hmm. which I'm only on day four, but they have a few thousand employees. Um, and there's many more women that are yeah. part of that company. But of course, with a high growth company, there are many more functions. Yeah. So there's functions like HR, you know, there's functions that maybe are a little bit more, um, that women are a bit more interested in. So mm-hmm. me sitting on the institutional coverage team in EMEA, so selling into, you know, hedge yeah. funds or pension funds or banks or corporates, um, I'm the only woman on the team here in the UK. Okay. So I think still there's a lot of work to be done there. I think mm-hmm. one of the, areas of opportunity of the pandemic potentially could be around this work from home um, virtual environment whereby you could potentially find ways to bring more talent um, and diversity to the surface from around the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, women maybe, you know, for better or for worse, no opinion, but cater maybe more to kind of the family life at home in certain instances, maybe it gives some of them more of an opportunity to actually be able to get involved in um, new industries or new new areas of opportunity where they can kind of have a little bit more flexibility. That Mm -hmm. could be a really positive thing. Um, Maybe it's bringing in people from various countries that you wouldn't otherwise have access to or cheaper labor that actually, you know, um, you know, is, 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 is not cheap for, for, for the local employees in a specific country, but for, you know, others, it could be saving you yeah. um, some really, you know, large significant costs. So I think there are some really interesting opportunities to look at there, but from my perspective, I've been still kind of um, a one woman show and um, really advocate for um, more, more diversity and kind of female Mm-hmm. um females in the workforce because i think we we bring um different soft skills to the table that can be really powerful when we combine them with 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 males and and with other um with other diversity across the business yeah yeah i hear you and so last question which is really you know playing on the the title of the podcast with the dream and the reality so you're very much into fintech now uh where, what is your dream for the future of fintech? You know, where, where do you see it going? And then followed by where do you think it will actually land? 
Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this question um, for quite a bit, and it's not an easy one. And I no, think the reason why it's, and I know it's not supposed to be easy, um, but in FinTech things, things move beyond the speed of light. Things move at an incomprehensible pace. Um, and it's, it's it, it, even the folks I work with, it's impossible to keep up. Yeah. Um, we can barely, you know, keep track of what's happening, um, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, where I'd love to kind of see FinTech go um, is to a place where everybody around the world has access to financial services um, there are so many emerging markets and countries right now that don't have any access to bank accounts, um, to be able to send remittances back home, um, to be able to, you know, generate, um, a bit of interest on a savings account or be able to learn how to invest very simply, um, through a brokerage account or, or through a crypto app. Um, and I think one of the things that that blockchain um, and that, that the digital economy could possibly bring is exactly some of that financial freedom because yeah. of the way um, that assets can be moved, can be traded, um, can kind of operate without um, without borders, um, and can bring some of that financial freedom to the to the you know forward um, mm -hmm. to people that maybe um, live more difficult lives than we do. So yes, I work maybe more on the B2B side, consulting kind of larger institutions, but being part of a company now that is that is much broader in scope and not just about kind of servicing larger businesses, but also mm -hmm. kind of democratizing the ability for people to get access um, to do these sort of things, even mm -hmm. if it just is in crypto right now, I think there's a big use case to use crypto to be able to democratize some of that globally. And I think for me, that's something that like is really heartwarming, but also yeah. um, is really just amazing to kind of drive change and be a part of that industry. Um, I think the second thing for me is to very much see um, a much more kind of gender equal workforce in, in, in fintech, like we spoke about. I think making, you know, making, providing for a cultural environment um, and kind of the right maybe education to get women excited um, yeah. about kind of joining these financial companies, getting involved in technology um, and knowing that you don't need to be a super technologically savvy person to be part of the journey, mm -hmm. I think is really important. And I'd love to see that because I am not a quant, I'm not a developer, I'm not writing Python code, um, and but I bring other skill sets. And I think yeah. that's something that I'd love to kind of see other women um, take part of and and, mm -hmm. um, and and understand the value of, of, of the space. I think it's a really cool space to be in. Fabulous. What, what, a, what a response. And I think that that really is, you know, I think that although that's the dream, I think a portion of that can come true as reality. And there's, there's steps that can be taken, you know, in the next in the next months and years that can make some of that really a reality. And I think that, you know, there's so much scope for this. And, and I'm not I'm not going to touch on, you know, the environmental impact of cryptocurrency as it goes global. <laughs> Because I think that will, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to blow up Twitter again over that, but you know. <laughs> it's being it's worked on though. I think there's a, there's, yes, I think th th there's challenging to, to, there's challenges to that, of course. And there's challenges to generally kind of 
um, environmental sustainability across many, many, many industries. And it's very important to look at that and think about strategies to kind of alleviate some of the impacts that, that we bring to our environment. And um, of course. that is something being worked on in, in the crypto space at multiple levels. But um, mm -hmm. I think we all have you know, a part to play in, in that across all industries. And I we think do, too, and I think that we have to remember in this discussion that's what what is the cryptocurrency offsetting in the traditional banking system, and then look at you know the the energy consumed in traditional banking as well, and as an offset to understand really the true impact, you know, before we start calling ca catastrophe. Definitely, would. it's a it's it's a it's a very 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 valid point. Um, yeah. I completely agree, and yes, I do hope that my dream um, will somewhat become a reality. And um, hopefully I will see that in, in, in my lifetime. I hope so. I hope so. That would be <laughs> awesome. So the last thing I have, and I hope, I hope uh, this, is, this is going to go smooth. So uh, recommendations. So do you have a book or podcast that you like to recommend to people? Yes, that is a good one. Um, the podcast that I have been listening to recently that I find gives me a lot of just, you know, interesting ideas, kind of creativity being sparked um, is the Stanford, um, oh goodness, it's called the Stanford, I think, Entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial um, Podcast. It's basically... We'll the, put it in the show notes anyway to link for people. Um, it's basically, yeah, it's um, the Stanford Entrepreneurial Podcast. And basically, um, Stanford out in California is, um, is a school that is very much associated with not just Silicon Valley, but a lot of successful entrepreneurs that have come up in the space um, mm -hmm. across fintech and across many industries. And they basically have a number of the professors there and um, um, and, and, and teachers there basically interview um, CEOs and founders of startups. Um, wow. But they don't just kind of look at startups that, you know, are early stage, but they look mm -hmm. at startups and speak to like the founders of Stripe, for example. Yeah. Um, or the founders of Airbnb, and and they're able to really kind of, um, I think, honestly and transparently, kind of have really interesting conversations about the challenges they had when they first um, kind of started out and where they are today. Yeah. And I've just learned so much, and I've been able to apply it to a lot of the ways that I think, whether it's like yeah. a marketing idea or it's how to like build a product in a really like customer centric way that's like totally off the beaten path yeah. or um, just like these really interesting nuggets that mm -hmm. sometimes if I'm going for a walk, um, I know it's not a very like, you know, personally exciting podcast, but it's more business oriented, but it really, yeah. it really, um, it, it just brings a lot of value to me and it just gets me thinking and it makes you realize that, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's just figuring it out. <laughs> um, we're all just a bit of a, a work in progress and we're all just kind of figuring it out as we go. And I think that's the best way to be innovative and, um, and, and yeah, and like just strive for success, but be okay with making mistakes along the way and, and, and giving back and sharing those insights with others. And I really enjoy the podcast. Cool. I think we'll have to check that one out. And that will be in the show notes as well for people so that they can follow up on that one. And the last recommendation is a song that always brings a smile to your face. 
any song by Billy Joel, who oh. is from Hicksville, Long Island, whereas, as you may know, I'm a Long Island girl. Um, so any song by Billy Joel makes me think of Long Island sunsets um, and really good Italian restaurants and just, yeah, really nice memories of New York. So I'm a big Joel, Billy Joel fan. Fabulous, what a great recommendation, I love it. <laughs> That's a great one. Well, look, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been a really, uh, you know, you've really opened my eyes so much more to this. I'm just going to have such an in-depth conversation with my husband now on all of this because he's he he loves all cryptocurrencies, and uh, it, it's been it's but you really made it in a translatable way. I think that you really opened up on a on the whole market on where it's going, the direction and how it interacts with things and, and really the future. And I really appreciate, you know, your, your insights into that. And thank you so much. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. I, I hope it's helpful and happy to, um, to connect with any of your listeners. And I really appreciate um, the opportunity. It's thank been you so super. Much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ali.